Thank you, Michelle, for leading us today. So good. Well, uh, I wanted to turn to James chapter 1. We're going to be there in a few minutes. Uh, We're going to be talking today about trials and about wisdom, about the response of true faith, really, to real life. So uh, I have a a marriage to perform this afternoon for a friend in uh, just north of here. And we're just celebrating graduation. We have these happy, uh, almost euphoric moments where we seem like we want to celebrate and think everything is good. And it is a wonderful time to celebrate what God is doing. But we all know that difficulties lay ahead. We don't know what the difficulties are sometimes, but we do know that they lay ahead. Um, And that we are, as is often said, we're either coming out of a storm or we're in a storm or we're headed for one. Well, some of those difficulties may be temporarily made easier by our own means. We may find a way to make them seem easier in life uh, by pursuing worldly wisdom, by pursuing a way to take us out of the difficulty instead of through it. But but godly, God-given wisdom is so essential, and that's really what we want to talk about today, about uh, going through the adversities, the trials of life in such a way that they honor God and they allow him to do what he wants to inside of us. Uh, James gives his readers and and to, to us today this instruction about how to faithfully, faithfully, and the object of our faith is Jesus Christ. It's not a blind faith, it's not a leap of faith, it's a sure faith in this person, Jesus Christ, how to faithfully live in this world, and specifically today, really through the trials of life, how to do that. So if you look with me at James chapter 1, we're going to read the first eight verses. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So let's pray. Father, I thank you today for uh, giving us your word. I thank you for a book that is so practical, but yet at the same time, not practical in such a sense that it makes us have to work everything out for ourselves. Quite the opposite. All of these practical commands that James gives us are rooted in Jesus Christ. And so I pray that we would see that today. Lord, it's such a joy uh, preparing for sermons in that you teach me and others who prepare sermons so much about yourself and about ourselves and who we are. But I pray today that we, that we would not try to enhance Scripture, not try to make it more than it is because your word is sufficient. So help us just to magnify what you have said and what you're saying to us today. 
And I pray that by the power of your spirit, it would transform our lives and hearts, Lord, that we'd be changed. That we would not be overcome by our difficulties. That we would see the trials of life in a way that's countercultural, counterintuitive, because it's not of this culture and it's not of the wisdom of this world. It's of your wisdom, Lord. And because of that, we can have joy through the trials and challenges of life. Help us to know how to do that. And then help us to act on it and live on it so that we are a light to others and they will see what you are doing, that it will be for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is a very simple passage in a sentence. I put that in your notes. I believe that the, the, the true faith in Christ responds with joy when facing trials and seeks God for wisdom. True faith is going to respond with joy and it's going to seek God for wisdom. So immediately, this, this guy James writing this book, he's, he's the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And they're in a period of persecution, not only in Jerusalem, but in all the known part of the world then, both in Judea and abroad. And after the martyrdom of Stephen, after Stephen was stoned to death, there was this dispersion. And that's what James is writing. He's writing to the, the Jewish Christians who are dispersed to different parts of the world. And, and there are some words of wisdom there. Uh, he wants to give instruction for how to live as believers, even in difficult circumstances. The reality of life, the reality of it. We can come and, you know, kind of hear good things and try to get motivated and those kinds of things, but those aren't the reality of life. I want you to think back today over the last decade of your life. Just, just kind of summarize that in your mind. If there were probably some unexpected joys during that time, but there were also some unexpected trials, some, some unexpected heartache, maybe even what seemed unbearable at the time. And hopefully through those experiences, God taught you some things about himself, about how you could have a true faithfulness in him that he was going to bring you not out of not over those trials but through them and that he was going to use that for your good and for his glory if we were to testify today there would be a, a variety of those kinds of testimonies in this room the different kinds of heartache that we've experienced um, but before <laughs> We label James here. We, we, we see this. He says, count it all joy when you meet trials. Before we kind of label him as a kind of a, a pastor crazy guy because that, that seems so counterintuitive for saying, hey, count it joy when bad stuff happens to you. Remember that Peter in 1 Peter 4.13 says, rejoice insofar that you share in Christ's sufferings. Paul in many places, one of them Romans 5, 3. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that sufferings produce endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. But we want to ask some questions. If that is the case, we know that we're to count it joy in trials. We want to ask some questions about that. How do we find joy in the middle of trials? How do we do that? Well, 
four things that I want to point out to you about this how question. One is that, that this is a radical attitude, an attitude that says we're going to expect, we're going to expect trials and not be surprised by them. James says, count it all my joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. He's telling us that you are going to have trials in your life. There's no uncertainty about that. And then there's the thing that comes from that, that flows out of that, if, if, uh, the why, the why question. Why does this happen? Well, two reasons. We, we talk all the time about for, for his good and for our glory. But what we need to remember that is that in the middle of those trials, we won't always understand either of those things. We won't understand why this could be for God's glory, how this could be for God's glory. And most certainly, because we are feeling the pain of that trial, we will not understand how it could be for our good. Secondly, about um, how we find joy in trials, we should never deny the reality of emotional pain. So we don't want to be confused here and say this is a very irrational thing, that a command to have joy in trials, we want to see that it's not a command to suppress or deny your pain. God is not telling us through his word that that you're just supposed to act like your pain is not there. That is not consistent with scripture. They're not mutually exclusive. I'll give you a couple of examples from scripture. When Jesus comes to Lazarus' tomb in John 11, we know that Jesus wept. He wept tears of hurt, of emotion, of pain. And Paul tells us in Romans 12 that we who are in Christ are to rejoice with those who rejoice and we're to weep with those who weep. And so counting it joy is not a denial of the pain that is inside of us. We need to be willing to, to, to acknowledge that pain. Thirdly, it, it's a radical attitude. It's not a natural attitude. It's not something that's natural to any of us to say, okay, this trial has come into my life and I'm going to find a way to rejoice in that because we, without, apart from Christ, are just natural men and our limits are what happens to us circumstantially in this world. And so when those things become negative, there's nothing in the natural man that says, well, I'm just going to find a way to rejoice in this. Nothing. But this is evidence of Christ in our lives because we will have a desire to rejoice in trials in our life. Ultimately, our hope is not in anything that happens or doesn't happen in this world. Ultimately, that is why we can, we can rejoice because God is doing something that's going to outlast all the pains and sorrows of this world. And then lastly, about this radical attitude, it's the result of, of a de- deliberate choice. It's the result of a choice that we make. It's your faith that is being tested. If I were to go out and buy a rain jacket and bring it in here this Sunday, and I were to tell you that this is the best rain jacket in Tupelo that you can buy, and I wore that thing, let's say, the next seven days, it was sunny weather out there, and I wore that rain jacket every day and I came back next Sunday and I said, see, it didn't get wet, not a bit. I have faith in this rain jacket. It's not faith. Faith is exercising your belief in God. Faith is saying, 
I know that this bad circumstance has happened and I know that the world will tell me I should be mad at God and God is a God who's supposed to make me happy and he's not making me happy so I'm losing my faith. This is not that kind of faith. It's a faith that outlasts all of that and put into practice. Flip back over to Hebrews chapter 2. Just read that uh, very quickly. The rain jacket is only tested when it begins to rain. Hebrews chapter 2, the writer of Hebrews writes this, Therefore we may put, must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. So what the writer of Hebrews is telling us is that the current of this world is drifting away from the wisdom of God. So we have to pay attention to what God has said to us or doubts will creep into our faith. So back to James 1. We'll be back there in a minute. Uh, a second question that this might lead to is, is if, if how do we find joy in trials? Not only that, but how do we find reassurance in trials? We get into these situations and we become weary. And James has some things that, that we, the, and the Bible has some things that we need to see about this. We need to know these two, three, two things. Every challenge we face, every trial we face is ordained by God. And that's difficult for us to understand when we're in the middle of the trial. James is going to use some language later on in the, in the part of this passage about wisdom that talks about uh, um, being like a wave on, of the sea that's driven, tossed by the wind. Sometimes we feel like that. But what we must know is that we who are in Christ are never lost and we're never driven by the wind, even when we don't understand the circumstances that are happening in our life. It's not as if God is kind of batting 800 up there, a really good batting average, right? But every once in a while, he's doing the best that he can, but, but things just slip by him, and we just have to deal with that the best that we can. This is what you need to know as a believer by faith. Everything that you will face this week is ordained by God. Every bit of it, nothing, not one molecule slips by God. And so we can take comfort in that. Secondly, in, in how we find reassurance is that trials test our faith and faith produces insurance. Trials have a purpose. Trials have a purpose. And, and, and God uses that individually in all of our lives. Let me give you a good example. I'm the kind of person who hates conflict. I hate it. I have a natural aversion to that. And God has used the trials of conflict in my life to understand, to help me to understand and help me to grow, to, to see that he can work through that, that he is bigger than all of that. And it's not so much about how I deal with conflict as it is how he is bigger than all of that and works in the middle of that. Our trials test our faith and faith produces insurance, assurance. All of us could give examples about that. That leads us to a third question about trials. Where is this endurance going to lead us? Where will it lead us to? Well, it leads us to, first of all, to submission to God. You see in verse 4, Peter says, Let steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see that word let? That's a passive word. That's a submissive word. That is, I'm giving my will over to God. I am submitting to him in this trial. I'm going to trust him. I'm not going to 
take that kicking and screaming it doesn't mean that we always just lay down to the trials and we don't do anything about them but but we submit to what God is doing through our trials let steadfastness let endurance is another word it implies a submission to God trusting him in a difficulty of life but we need to be clear that being submissive to God does, doesn't necessarily mean we don't take steps to remedy a problem. Uh, if, if the job you wanted falls through, you trust God, but you seek another job. If there's an illness, you trust God, but you do what you can to seek help within his parameters there. Um, submissiveness does not mean total passiveness it just means submissiveness to the fact that God is in control of the trials that are going through your life and then also through the process of, of spiritual maturity this word process here is what he's talking about we're, we're maturing the last part of verse 4 says this that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. How many people in here in your walk with Christ feel like today you're lacking in nothing? None of us are complete. We're on a journey, but when we understand that God is working through the trials of our life and we trust him with that and we look for what he is doing, then we're moving toward this period of where we look like Christ and where we are lacking in nothing that is the goal uh, is through the process of spiritual maturity that endurance will lead us again I want to emphasize today what, what this makes clear to us is that that God doesn't take us out of storms that's our first natural reaction so much right you put your hand on the the counter and it's really hot you didn't know it was hot you feel pain you're going to jerk back natural reaction in our lives what the way that that plays out is when we feel pain when we feel we feel hurt we want to go around the problem over the problem away from the problem get away from it when God wants to take us right through that in order to grow us and he will so the point is, are you trusting God that he is taking you toward that point, that point of maturity, that point of being perfect and completely lacking in nothing? And notice it's through, it's not around. It's not over, it's under, it's through it. Well, that's a tall order. We all want to be like that. We all want to find joy in our trials. It almost seems idealistic apart from the power of God working in us. So what's important as we enter this process of maturity? How, how do we, if we say, yes, that's what I want, but I have trouble dealing with trials. I need to grow in that area of how I face the trials in my life. What's the point in entering into and, and being in that point of maturity? I think if we look at verses five through eight, we can, we can really get three basic questions about what guides us through this, this process, a process of maturity and where God has wonderful patience. James says, 
if any of you lacks wisdom, so I want you to get that connection there. Verse four at the end, he says, the goal is to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What does he point to first that we need to step into, the portal that we need to step into for spiritual maturity? Wisdom. If you're lacking in wisdom, how do you pursue wisdom? That is what is going to help you see things God's way and act the way that God wants you to act. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts again is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man unstable in all his ways. Uh, I like John Phillips' uh, version of of james i want to read verses uh well it'll begin in verse two but but i want to i want you to see what jb phillips says about this when all kinds of trials and temptations crowd into your lives my brothers don't resent them as intruders but welcome them as friends realize that they come to test your faith and to produce in you the quality of endurance but let the process Go on until that endurance is fully developed. And you'll find that you become men of mature character with the right sort of independence. And if in the process any of you does not know how to meet any particular problem, he has only to ask God, who gives generously to all men without making them feel foolish or guilty. And he may be quite sure that the necessary wisdom will be given to him. You see that promise there? You see the surety of what James is telling us? That God says, you never faithfully ask for wisdom, and God says, mm, maybe or maybe not today. I don't know if you need it. No. We ask for wisdom in faith. He will give us that wisdom, and we need it. So, three questions. Three questions about this. What do we need? We need wisdom. We talked about this word lacking. It's, it's not, um, it's not, uh, it, we're entering into this portal of maturity and wisdom and you're thinking, you're living, you're acting. It's, it's, it's simple. But what we need is God's, as God's image bears, is to think God's thoughts and to act God's actions. That's what wisdom is. It's not knowing more. It's not having a, a deeper understanding of the technicalities of the Bible. All of those things are good and they can help. But it's being in God's word, submitted to him, knowing that he is going to impart himself to you and then acting upon it in your life. That's wisdom. So wisdom is, is an interesting word. We hear words like education, knowledge. We celebrated some of those things like intellectual knowledge, uh, the fruit of all of that hard work and increasing knowledge today. And all of those in and of themselves are not bad. But it's not the same as wisdom. It's not simply cognitive. It's not knowing more about God. It's not simply a matter of the mind, but it's a matter of of morality it's it's about 
the actions that accompany our belief system. We, we believe a certain way, and as a result, we behave a certain way if we are wise men and women. Jesus tells us this in Scripture. He tells us the, the wise man built his house upon the rock. The rock is the foundation of Scripture, the faith in Jesus Christ. And the foolish man built his house upon the sand. Probably sang that song, and I'm not going to sing it. I'm not that preacher. But what happened? The rains came down, and the floods came up, and the wise man's house stood, and the foolish man's house washed away. Was it because that the wise man had more knowledge than the foolish man? No, it was because the wise man acted on what he had heard. Wisdom is knowing god's mind and acting in god's way it's not just knowledge uh, it's not just knowledge i want to i want to you don't have to flip there but i want to read a passage to you from uh from first kings chapter three and this has to do with uh with solomon when, when solomon is coming to the throne God says to Solomon, ask what I shall give you. And I want you to listen closely because we know what Solomon asked for wisdom. Solomon said, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or to come in. I want to point something out to you. He's going to ask for wisdom. You never see wisdom apart from humility. Wisdom is always, you you never see a proud person who's growing wiser. David comes in, excuse me, Solomon comes in humility. And he says, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your, cho- your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding of mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern, govern this, your great people? I don't see any relativism there. Part of wisdom here is that Solomon says, let me know what is good and what is evil and to act appropriately to that. Now, that's very important because I want to tell you, we live in a relativistic world. We live in a world where in a myriad of ways, people are trying to knock the edges off of the the clear-cut goodness of God. And knowing him and pursuing his wisdom allows us to not be uh, fooled by any of that. We, we need his wisdom. He's asking for wisdom, not relativism. It's, it's important. So what do we need? We need wisdom. The next question, what do we do? Well, James tells us clearly. We ask God. We ask God. 
complicated process, right? We ask God for wisdom, but, but who is God? Who, who is God that we're asking? We don't need to look far. Look down in verse 17. This God, it tells us about him. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there are no variations or shadows due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is God's design for us. And so what is he going to do when we faithfully ask him for wisdom? He's going to lavish it on us. So we don't make it complicated. I need wisdom, God. I need to know how to understand you and faithfully take that into my mind, into my heart and all that I am. And then I need to know how to live it out. That's what James is saying here. So we ask God. Uh, and how do we ask him? Well, a couple of ways that we ask God. We're going to ask him very simply and very properly. You ask God for wisdom and you ask him with, with a humble spirit, with sincere, with, with sincerity and, and, and in faith. You know, this sounds like a no-brainer, but I want to tell you, it's a challenge in this entitled Western culture. Um, I ate lunch at um, Chick-fil-A yesterday, right? I kind of listened as I was in line. As a matter of fact, I've done that all week when I was in line in places. And I noticed the way that people order things. Give me a number two. I want this. I need that. Um, stating commands. It almost sounds like a demand that you're making now I'm not passing a lot of judgment on that because you can make the argument well I'm paying them my money I can ask for it any way I want to but I don't know if you're being salt and light in that situation but what I want to point out to you is that it is a part of our culture is it a part of our western being that we feel like we are entitled it's like the prodigal son coming to his father give me mine right now the father we come that way and say you owe me he, he will say no I don't owe you I don't so we ask humbly and we need to think about this the way that we approach God sincerely and without doubt without doubt I think that's a lot of the reason so many times that we, we don't ask God for the wisdom that we need it's because we have doubts way back in the back of our mind. And sometimes our doubts may be, well, could God really give this to me? Could God really tell me what I need to know in this very difficult situation? Because I can't figure it out. But you know what the doubt may be? The doubt may be, do I really want to give that part of myself over to God? Do I really want to do that? Because you know what? You know what his wisdom may do? It may but take me back down that road of more trials. And I don't know. So am I going to ask God for wisdom saying I'm faithfully asking for this and I'm going to do what you asked me to do? It's a good place for self-examination when you're praying for wisdom. Uh, let me read what Philip says again about this. He must ask with sincere faith without secret doubts as to whether he really wants God to help. 
or not? It's a convicting question. Do you really want his help? Or do you want him to tell you what you want to know? Well, when we ask him for the wisdom we need to live in the way he wants, we must not then proceed to do things our very own way. When we ask him for the wisdom that we need, to live the way he wants, we must not then proceed to do things in our own way. So if we do come to him for wisdom, what will we find? What will we find? Well, let me, ask, let me answer this in a couple of ways. We see this, in, uh, the negative and the positive. I want to take the negative first. From asking with doubt. Here's what we will find when we ask God in doubt. Nothing. Very simple. When we try to hedge our bets, when we try to, uh, it, it's kind of like this. This is a picture that comes to my mind. You go to the mall and you've got the escalators there and one is going up and one is going down and you want to get on that one going up, but you're not sure about it. So you're, you're hopping back and forth between, you're trying to ride both escalators at the same time, right? Or when you're on two horses, one horse is called faith, one horse is called doubt, and you're trying to ride them both at the same time. What are you doing? You're tormenting. You're torn apart inside when you're doing those things. That's what happens inside of us when we ask in doubt. We'll not receive anything from the Lord. But when we ask in faith, what we receive is a sure, a sure generosity from God. So this is not, well, I prayed. That means I'm asking in faith. What if you're praying and asking for God for something that's contrary to Scripture? Most pastors have, at some point in their life, if they've been in ministry for any long time, have done some kind of a, 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 a marital situation where somebody has said, well, I've prayed to God and they told me to leave my spouse. That is not a prayer of faith. I don't know who they're talking to, but it's not God. So it's not a faith in God. Or... Uh, I have peace that, that something is God's will when it's contrary to God's will. In other words, a prayer of faith will be accompanied by seeking out God in his word. He has spoken to us. The word is inerrant. The word is sufficient. And we should rely on the word. And seeking out him and getting wisdom of him is never going to contradict his word. But when we ask in faith, we're going to receive a, a, a sure generosity from him God tells us this uh, let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts it's like a wave of the sea I've already read that but, but in verse 5 a God who gives generously without reproach and it will be given to him let me try to illustrate this Proverbs 1 7 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all knowledge it's the beginning of wisdom the fear of the Lord what do you think of when you hear fear you can think of several different things uh, when I was in high school, there are a couple of teachers that I remember specifically in high school. One teacher came to me, well, I, I like algebra. I, I'm not going to be like Paige Thorne and get a PhD in mathematics, but, but I like algebra. I like the problem-solving aspect of algebra, or I used to. It's, it's made an impact on my life. So you got AX plus B equals C. Well, if you know what A and B and C are, you can figure out what X are. That's a 
very basic algebraic equation. It, it's taking what you know to figure out what you don't know. And that applies to a lot of problem-solving skills in life. And I think God has used that in my life. When I was in the 10th grade, this, this algebra teacher came to my school. I didn't really have that much of a love for algebra. And uh, she was a really good teacher. And, and after my 10th grade year, when she taught algebra, she, she happened to move up to geometry and trig and calculus. So I really had her for three years of high school. This is what I remember about Mrs. Bowers. She would, uh, her patience was amazing. You could go up to her on her break period after class. You could ask her any question. If you asked it sincerely, if it was a sincere question, she had all day to talk to you about it. And if it was the same question that you asked the day before, she would smile, but it wasn't the smirky smile. It was like, we were here yesterday, weren't we? Okay, let's look at this a different way and sit down and go through it again. And over and over and over, she would um, teach me. She would teach her students. She had a, an amazing desire to, to lavish her knowledge upon students, to help them become more of what they were supposed to be as students. And that had a lifelong impact on my life. I had another teacher named Mr. Barnett in, a, in the ninth grade in my science class. I'm sorry if your last name is Barnett, but um, I remember one day he was dictating notes. Oh, you ever been in that class where the guy's just reading the notes and having you write them down and you're supposed to learn that way? And uh, some students were disruptive and he had one of those moments where he says, the next person that says a word's getting a paddling. Well, about five minutes later, he was walking by me and said something and giving the notes, and I didn't understand him. And I said, I'm sorry, did you say such and such? And he looked at me, and he looked at the class, and he pointed out in the hall. And I went outside, and I got, I guess, what was technically what I should have gotten in that moment. But it was not only that, he, began, he took opportunities for the rest of that semester to point out to other students that he had paddled me in that situation, right? Now, I had some good science teachers after that, but I want to tell you, when I think of science, that's what I think of. You know, I don't want anything to do with it. No, not good. What I want you to see is that, that God... How do I say this? He lavishes his wisdom upon us. He never gets tired. He never grows impatient when we come to him with the same things over and over. Out of sincerity and out of a need for wisdom. That's what he's saying here. God doesn't always... Oh, answer the way that we want him to answer he gives us his word and by his spirit the answer we want it may not be there but he will give us the right answer he will give us something much better than what we may want and he gives us an answer that we can trust you know the great theologian Johnny Cash He says, I talk to Jesus every day and he's interested in every word I say. 
And no secretary ever tells me he's been called away. I talk to Jesus every day. So he never tires. He never tires of your faithful, humble coming to him. Even if you're having to relearn the lessons of wisdom over and over and over. And so what happens is when you relearn them and you get in that trial of life, it is stuck. And he's going to grow you through it. And the things that used to shake you will not shake you anymore because you're more like Christ. So how do we respond to this? Well, we know the truth of all this, but in the deepest trials of life, we can feel overwhelmed. I want you to listen through to the gospel through what is said really in this simple verse today as we come to the table in just a moment. I want you to look with me Verse 1, a very simple verse. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Just the first part of that verse. Let me ask you something. Have you ever name dropped? Have you ever said somebody's name that you knew or somebody that you met just to impress other people to let you know you knew somebody that you rubbed shoulders with somebody who's important? If we raised hands, most of us have probably done that in some form or fashion. I'll remind you of something. This James is the brother of Jesus. He wasn't a believer until after Jesus' resurrection. He didn't come to faith in, in Jesus Christ, Jesus' brother, his biological brother, until after the resurrection. But now he's the leader of the church in Jerusalem. But what I want you to notice here is that he identifies himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. His biological brother, but he's, he's identifying himself as his servant. I am, he is my Lord, is what James is saying. He may have been my brother, may have had this circumstance, but what matters is he is my Lord. And that, my friends, is where we find the power to live out these things that we've talked about today. Without the work of Jesus Christ, without the shedding of his blood, the, the, the breaking of his body, the resurrection and conquering death, then all of this would be futile. It would be, when you run into a trial, you get out of it the best you can. And when it's over, it's over. No hope except what's here. That's what the greatest philosophy minds of our age who don't know Christ have, have all come to the conclusion of but James says something different he says I can walk through trials I can go to my God in wisdom because Jesus has made him known to me and that's what we celebrate today when we come to the table we come to seeing what Jesus has done so that we could have this privilege of approaching the throne of God and receiving generously over and over his wisdom. And so that's what we're going to do as a time of response today. We're going to come to the table and take the elements. I want to tell you, you don't have to be a member of Trace to participate in this meal, in this Lord's Supper, in this communion with us, but you do need to be a believer. You need to be someone who has put your faith in Jesus Christ has repented and turned to, your, turned to him 
uh, in remission of your sins. And so I do want to pray for us, but after I pray, what we're going to do is from the back, we're going to come down and get the elements and return to our seats. And we gather up as family and friends here, and we pray over these elements, and we remember what Christ has done in his spirit. We are joint heirs with Christ because his body was broken and his blood was shed. And we praise him for that. So let's pray. Father, today, I, I pray that if there one, be one here who, has, who says, uh, I'm trying to figure out how to work my way to God by maybe being better at facing trials, I, I pray that they would stop right where they are and see that apart from knowing Christ, that is a hopeless strategy. The reason we can endure whatever we will face this week and not only endure it but have joy in it because we can know that you're working through it is that because our hope is in this Jesus. And so help us to trust in him. I pray for the, if there's someone who doesn't know Christ that they would turn to him right now in their sin, from their sin and turn to him and trust this Jesus. Lord, as we who are believers celebrate this meal, as we take this meal, as we ponder what Christ has done for us that we could not do for ourselves, I pray that you would continue to lay our sin before us and that we would confess it and know that we can because of the work of Jesus. And may we, along with James, say that we are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, bond servants, willing servants, under his lordship, joyfully under his lordship, not begrudgingly, and celebrate that in our life. And Lord, the wisdom that you give to us, may we apply it to our lives in a way that transforms us and makes your name known to our city and to the world.